I know it'll be an exciting game from a you know fans perspective and uh, we love that atmosphere and environment that they create but I think one of the things that's really important for players is can you stay focused on you know what you need to do and not get affected by you know a lot of the external factors. Hello and welcome to a Wednesday edition of Always College Football. Today is September 6th and we hope that you're having a terrific start to Labor Day week. It's a four-day week, man. We're almost there. we got games in a couple days. We are cooking with gas and we want to make sure that you guys are a bigger part of the show here in year number two. So that's why we have incorporated the Wednesday show with the midweek mailback. We want you to submit questions. Always CFB on our Instagram and on our Twitter. We're checking it constantly. We'll ask for questions after Mondays, but we'll also ask for them on Tuesdays or whatnot. So just give us a follow and we'll document these questions. If you submit them now, we might answer them next week. Always CFB on Instagram and Twitter. On our email at alwayscollegefootball at gmail.com. You can also follow me and submit them there as well at Greg McElroy. Also, we have the second edition of the AP poll. Some movers and shakers, some teams that made big leaps, and some teams that plummeted in the AP poll will give you some of the biggest reactions, some of the movers, some of the teams that should be moved, some that weren't, some that should be higher, some that should be lower. So we'll break that down in its entirety here in week number two. So let's not waste any additional time. It's the AP poll reaction right here on Always College Football. AP poll reaction week two, maybe it's overreaction. Maybe that's a more appropriate way of defining what it was that the AP gave us just moments ago back on Tuesday at two o'clock. It was released and here's how they stack up at number one, Georgia receiving 58 votes. Michigan's in at two. They received two first place votes. Bama's at three Florida state all the way up to number four. They received three First place votes, I might add. Ohio State dropping down to number five, followed by SC at six, Penn State seven, Washington, Tennessee, and Notre Dame round out the top 10. 11 through 20 are as follows. Texas, Utah, Oregon, LSU, who's all the way down to 14, Kansas State, Oregon State, who slipped up just a couple. I can't believe they didn't move up just a little bit more. North Carolina, Oklahoma, Wisconsin, and Ole Miss round up the top 20. And then here's where it gets really interesting. At number 21, the Duke Blue Devils, Colorado at 22, AM at 23, Tulane at 24, and then Clemson falling all the way to number 25. Let's start with the immediate reaction. Let's address the elephant in the room, the big movers based on the performance in week one. Duke jumping up to number 21. Duke, it's the first time they've been ranked since 2018 and the first time Colorado has been ranked since COVID in 2020. Remember, they had a pretty good year that year. People kind of forget. I know I kind of do, but COVID is kind of a forgettable year to begin with. Iowa and TCU, you're probably wondering who the teams that were moved out. Iowa was moved out as was TCU, understandably so, after they were terrible defensively there against the Buffaloes. Ohio State drops down to number five. That's their lowest ranking in the AP poll in the last two seasons. Florida State all the way up to number four. That's the first time Florida State has been in the top five since 2017's preseason poll. Started that year at number three. Remember, they played Alabama. It was a huge game. And then DeAndre Francois got hurt, and then Florida State really wheels fell off, and they were never quite 
the same. The biggest drops were from LSU, who dropped from 5 to 14. Understandably, you probably could have dropped them a little bit lower, especially based on how they played there in the second half. Granted, they did have a couple opportunities in the first half on fourth down, short yardage that couldn't quite get it done. But they got to address some issues along the offensive line. But if you think about where they were last year, going into week one, and after they performed in week one, you think about LSU, think about how much better they got over the course of the season. I think they'll probably be okay, but either way, they have some things to address. Brian Kelly knows that, especially when you listen to his press conference. He said, we are not the team we thought we were. Understandably so. Got to get things fixed, and you got to get things figured out. And the biggest drop on the table were the Clemson Tigers. They fell from 9 to 25. And I'm going to be honest, guys. I'm going to be really honest. I know that Clemson was a phenomenal program from 2015 to 2022, and they might very well be phenomenal again this year. But last night's performance was as bad as I've seen them look in over 10 years. It was really, really bad. I think the last time I saw them look that bad was against Florida State back in 2013. It's been a while since we've seen them lay such an egg. They didn't have really any threat downfield. I didn't the receivers create a lot of separation. They weren't able to consistently put things together in the red zone. People are saying, well, Duke played amazing. They did. Duke played great. Duke did everything you wanted them to do to be able to pull off the upset, except they didn't. Duke had plenty of their own mistakes. So had Duke not made any mistakes, how did Clemson score their only touchdown of the game? It was on a muffed punt. So I think at this point, look, I know Clemson has talent. I know they've recruited well. I know they have all these things. But based on week one performance, it'd be hard for me to have them in the top 25. Now, who would I put in over Clemson? That's a conversation that we can have. I haven't really thought about it that closely. But either way, I think they're lucky to be in the top 25. And it was very appropriate for them to drop as far as they did. As far as the conference supremacy argument, one that we always like to have, right? <laughs> we always love the conference supremacy argument. The Pac-12 currently has six teams ranked in the top 25. That's tied with the SEC for the most con most among all the conferences. And that's actually the most that the Pac-12 has ever had in the history of the AP poll. So you think about six out of 12 that are ranked for the Pac-12. It's truly remarkable. And you know UCLA is pretty close. Uh, who knows? Maybe Cal with a win this week against Auburn. Maybe they get close. Who knows? All I know is that I don't recall a time where the Pac-12 was held in such high regard by the national media. It's awesome to see because it's reflective on the field. They're terrific. They're deep. They're capable. They have great players and they have excellent coaches as well. Maybe this thing gets a big shakeup. Maybe Washington State pulls off an upset. Maybe they get within striking distance. Who knows? Maybe all 12 teams in the Pac-12 will be in the top 25. Well, let's be real. Maybe 11 of the 12, because I don't think Arizona State is going to get close to being able to pull that off at any point this year, but maybe they will. Who knows? We've seen crazier things happen in the past. SEC also has six. ACC has four. There's one thing I learned from the ACC this, this past weekend. I think the ACC is a lot deeper than they've been in recent years. Part of that has to do with Clemson's regression and the fact that the middle of the league, NC State, North Carolina, uh, maybe Miami with a win this week against Texas A&M. Maybe they assert themselves as a, a potential contender. Louisville in the second half, terrible in the first half, great in the second half. 
there's a lot to like right now about the ACC top to bottom. It's a deep league. It's a competitive league. And it does feel for the first time in a while, like the middle of the league is certainly up for grabs. And when I say middle, I mean like two through eight. There's probably a bunch of teams that can beat each other. And that's including Clemson in that mix, because I think there's a bunch of teams that could get Clemson this year if they repeat the performance that we saw on Monday night. The Big Ten has four, which feels about right. A couple teams probably close, but not quite ready to jump into the top 25. The Big 12 has three, the American one, and of course, Notre Dame's in there to represent the independence, if you will. But those are some takeaways there. I didn't have a huge reaction. I thought, for the most part, the AP did a pretty good job. A lot of people would have Colorado in the top 10. I wouldn't go that far just yet. A lot of people would have Duke up maybe a little bit higher. I, I could probably be okay with that if they had had a more flawless performance against Clemson and weren't the beneficiary of Clemson's own miscues. Did LSU drop far enough? Probably, probably make a case they could drop maybe a touch more, but I'm not going to push back too drastically on it. I thought Washington at number eight was a little bit low. I would have Washington ahead of both USC and Penn State at the moment. They displayed tremendous firepower there from the second quarter on against a quality Boise State team that had come in and really found themselves at the end of last year. Thought they maybe had a chance to keep it close. Washington made sure that wasn't the case with the dominant second quarter performance. And then they played great down the stretch as well. So I think Washington, probably the team that's probably a little bit too low. But for all intents and purposes, it's early. We're going to overreact. Let's reassess a week from now when we get week three edition of the AP poll. Please continue to submit questions to our mailbag at alwayscollegefootball at gmail.com. This is the midweek mailbag. We are going to do this every single week of the college football season. So many great questions that you guys have sent in over the last couple of days. We wanted to get to as many as we could. We also have a ton of questions coming out of Twitter that we'll get to here in just a moment. But where are we starting today, Jackie? All right. First up is Tim in South Florida. He asks, who needs a win more to calm the fan base down on Saturday? Texas A&M or Miami? It's a great question. It's, I think... One of those where we are going to completely overreact to the outcome of this game. It just It's totally natural. It's totally expected. But look, given the state of the ACC right now, I think, look, I know that, that Mario has a long runway. I, I don't think he's in jeopardy. Look at how he's recruiting. Look at how already he's recruiting. Look at how they've already bolstered some of the NIL. Look how attractive it's been for a lot of players in the portal. So I think Miami is still in good shape. But if for whatever reason AM goes on the road to Miami and comes up short, and then you still have to look at the games that AM has to play down the stretch. AM still has a lot of losable games on the schedule. Now, will they ultimately lose all those games based on their week one performance? I think they're looking really good. The Bobby Petrino, granted, it's New Mexico. They went two and ten last year, but the offensive line looked better. I thought Connor Wigman was getting the ball out of his hands really quickly. looked really comfortable in the RPOs. They obviously have great length at wide receiver. They have unbelievable talent on the perimeter. Defense, thought they did some good things. So I think A&M, if they lose this one, it will be, in some ways, it will feel like a backbreaker because you're five, six years into the rebuild. Miami's two years into the rebuild. A&M at this point already expected to be contending. Miami even though most people thought, hey, Mario would wave the magic wand. I still think there's more to lose if you're AM at this point because you're just further along in your program development. 
All right, next one comes from Caleb in Tennessee. He says, what if Clemson's struggles over the past few years haven't been DJ Uyunglele's fault? How concerned should Clemson fans be for this season? Well, they haven't been DJ Uyunglele's fault because everyone put it on DJ, but here's the difference. Clemson's personnel is not what it once was. Think about all the great receivers that Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence had at their disposal. I mean, from Hunter Renfro, T. Higgins, uh, Mike Williams, um, Amari Rogers. I mean, just the list goes on and on. And DJ, I mean, at times their best weapon outside of Antonio Williams was a tight end last year. And Davis Allen is a good, solid tight end, but he's not a game breaker by any stretch of the imagination. The problem with Clemson is that their personnel on the perimeter is not what it once was. And their offensive line has never been great. Their offensive line's always been adequate. It's never been a group that's going to move you off the ball. They're okay. They're not a liability, but they're not an overwhelming strength either. Will Shipley's incredible, and he has done a lot for this offense, both in the run game and in the pass game, but the offensive line and the perimeter skill hasn't been ideal. So what made Clemson amazing for many, many years is that they could win their one-on-one matchups on the perimeter. I'm not as confident that they can do that. You watch one game last night, the separation wasn't there, and you think about Cade Klubnik. Cade Klubnik attempted 43 passes against Duke. They went for just over 200 yards passing. They averaged about five yards an attempt. If you look at how he was throwing it, they didn't get any big plays. They didn't stretch the field vertically. They didn't threaten the defense over the top, partly because Duke was playing bend, don't break, and don't let anything behind us, don't give up a big play, but still... Clemson, even when you played that bend-don't-break defense, you tried to keep things in front of you. You still couldn't do it because Clemson was so dynamic on the perimeter. So it wasn't DJ Uyunglele's fault. It's a collective effort, and I think their offense has to take some significant strides forward if they're going to be a real threat in the ACC. But based on week one, I don't think they're within striking distance of Florida State. I don't think they're within striking distance right now of what I saw from North Carolina. I think NC State would give them a lot of problems knowing how good they are on defense. And of course, they got they have Notre Dame coming to their place. They have a bunch of other games on the schedule that are not absolute guarantees. So it might be a tough year if they don't get some things ironed out here very, very soon in Clemson, South Carolina. All right, next one comes from David in Texas. He asks, the Big 12 will be under some pressure this weekend after a few teams lost games they shouldn't have last week. Can the conference rebound with Kansas, Iowa State, Baylor, Texas, Texas Tech, UCF, and Cincinnati all playing pretty big games? And what is a good win-loss record for this group? It's a great question when you think about how we perceive leagues, right? Everyone perceived TCU as a really good team, national championship runner-up. I told you on this program, I think they're going to regress significantly this year. I told you that. We loved them last year. Don't love them this year. Too much turnover. And I just don't think that it's a, it's a realistic opportunity for them based on how many close calls they had. I don't think it's likely that they bounce back in a big way. Um, do you perceive the strength of the league based on the strength of the teams at the top? That's the real question. Because if you are going to perceive the Big 12 as weak because of outcomes by Texas Tech, outcomes by Baylor, and outcomes by TCU, then you're probably not going to see the league through a real positive lens. But if you look at Oklahoma and how they played, you got to feel pretty good, albeit against gettable competition in Arkansas State. But it was a clinic. 
from start to finish offensively and defensively. You look at Texas. It was not good. Offensive line didn't play good. Quarterback, I don't think, played very good. I think the run game can certainly stand to benefit more. You take away four big plays, they average like two yards a carry. So there really wasn't a whole lot of efficiency offensively. I loved what I saw from them defensively, though. And if they go on the road and get a win in Tuscaloosa, is anyone going to be concerned about the state of the Big 12? Kansas State looks to be a player. You know they're going to be pretty good. Maybe UCF, based on how they played last Thursday, maybe they're a player. It's just... I think that just depends on how we perceive the league. Because if you're basing how good a league is by the middle of the league, then you're probably going to be disappointed when you're looking at the Big 12. But if you're looking at how teams are faring at the top, all can be righted with a couple big wins in the next few weeks. All right, next, Frank and Charlotte wants to know, are there any gambling lines from week two that are sticking out to you right now? A lot. (laughs) Just know, guys. Do not overreact to week one. Vegas is not going to overreact. We shouldn't either. So a few lines that have really stuck out to me. Colorado is a three-point favorite against Nebraska. Everybody and their brother is on Colorado. And guess what? That line hasn't budged as of right now. Another one. NC State really struggled against UConn for a better part of that game. It was not a flawless performance. Meanwhile, Notre Dame has gone out and run roughshod through every single team they've played up to this point. Granted, it's Tennessee State and Navy, but it hasn't been competitive. Notre Dame has been completely dominant on both sides of the ball, even though I do think there are some things along their offensive line from last week that they would like to clean up. And yet that line is seven or so in that vicinity. That one stood out. A little bit to me. Another one that I thought was really interesting. Have you guys seen Baylor, who just lost to Texas State? They're playing Utah at their place. And you're going to try to explain to me this. Hang on. Baylor just lost to Texas State. Utah just dominated Florida. And yet Baylor is only a six or seven point underdog. That one stood out to me. How about this one that also sounds a little bit funky? Because this one I thought was pretty mind-blowing. Texas Tech just lost to Wyoming. Oregon just hung 100 on Portland State. Now Texas Tech comes home. They welcome Oregon down, and that number's around a touchdown? Be careful with the week one overreactions is all I'm going to tell you because I think a lot of people will fall victim to what they saw last week, draw conclusions, which we should never do off week one. We can draw assumptions. We can gather information, but we cannot draw conclusions. We cannot draw conclusions. So those would be a few based on great or terrible week one performances and yet Vegas still baiting people in to either betting for or against some of the teams that either overachieved or underachieved in week one. All right, great one here from Nate in New York, talking about a couple of programs you love this year. He's got tough road matchups in week two. He wants to know who is in more danger of getting upset, Wisconsin or Ole Miss? I think the Wisconsin game is a very difficult game. I did not think they looked great. They ran the ball, obviously, fantastic. I really am having a hard time right now. And I went into the season not feeling great about Tulane. I thought they really overachieved in week one. It was an excellent performance. We'll talk about them a little bit more in a minute. But the team that I think is in a tougher spot is probably Wisconsin. It's a very difficult road trip. Anybody that's ever been to Pullman, Washington knows just how challenging that environment may be. 
Ole Miss is north of a touchdown favorite. I think their offense with Jackson Dart is going to be excellent. It will be a difficult place to play. It will be hostile. Tulane fans, I think, are really fired up about this opportunity to host an SEC program given that they were once an SEC member. So I think the more dangerous game is for Wisconsin. You look at what Washington State did last week, there were a lot of positives that came from that week one performance and the travel from Madison, Wisconsin to Pullman, Washington will be very challenging. So that would be one I'd be very, very careful with if I were a Badger fan. All right, last one here from Paul in Kentucky. He wants to know, are there any other ongoing quarterback competitions we should be keeping a close eye on outside of Alabama and Ohio State? Are you confident Dart and Milrow have firm holds on their jobs? I'm very confident that Jackson Dart has firm hold on his job, at least as of right now. I think he played well last week. I would imagine that he'll continue. He's taken great control of that offense, dating all the way back to the spring. You've heard nothing about nothing but positive reviews based on his performance, both in practice and throughout summer and fall camp. I think Jalen Milrow did enough to secure himself as the starter as of right now, but it seems like it's an evaluation still ongoing with Nick Saban. He's noncommittal, he's confident, but he's noncommittal at the moment. So I think they'll probably continue to assess where they're at when looking at, uh, I guess it's a three-way quarterback race, but it does appear now that Buckner has surpassed Simpson based on the pecking order that took the field last Saturday in Bryant-Denny. I think Ohio State's quarterback competition is still ongoing. Kyle McCord looking over his shoulder just a little bit. Ryan Day's already been outspoken about trying to give Devin Brown a little longer look against Youngstown State and then probably the following week against Western Kentucky. So I think that quarterback battle probably is still ongoing. As far as other places, I mean, is Auburn still in the quarterback battle? I don't think so. Peyton Thorne's the guy, but Robbie Ashford has a really nice package that he's going to be kind of thrust into with the quarterback run game when they get in the red zone. So I don't think there's anything really to see there. So there's not really a whole lot that are jumping out to me right now. But then again, week one competition was less than stellar for so many teams. As the competition ramps up and as the teams and the quality of the teams that they're playing ramps up, maybe you'll start to see a little less than stellar performances. And then that could open the door for a potential quarterback change down the road. So we put it out. You can follow us at Always College Football, Always CFB, on both Twitter and Instagram to submit questions. We put it out. We want to be more interactive. That's one of the things looking back from year one, going into year two. We want to be more interactive. We want to involve you more in the show. So we went to Twitter and we looked through some of the questions that were submitted. So we put them in the show. Let's start with Husker Fan for Life at For Life Husker. Love that name. I wonder who he pulls for. What are your thoughts on Colorado versus Nebraska? We're going to break this game down extensively here on the Friday edition of the show, but initial thoughts. Can Nebraska neutralize the athleticism that Colorado has on both sides of the ball? We know that Colorado has excellent play at wide receiver. We know they have tremendous speed at running back. We know they're going to operate with a really, really up-tempo style of attack that will spread you horizontally. But if there's one thing I really learned is that their catch and run, the run after catch, but also Shador Sanders' accuracy down the field was something that really stood out to me. So you're going to have to limit the big plays. You're going to have to tackle in space. You're going to have to do a really good job of trying to affect 
Shador Sanders with your pass rush. One thing that TCU could not do is they could not get home. They could not apply pressure. They did not have the capable bodies along their own offensive line and along their defensive line to inflict what might be some issues along both lines of scrimmage. We're still, at least as of week two, I'm still a little unsure about how Colorado's built on the interior. I don't think TCU really committed to the run game. I don't think TCU has a great offensive line. I don't think TCU is very good on the defensive front. So I'm really curious. I do think Nebraska is better than TCU in all three of those areas. Will they be able to neutralize some of the issues and cause some havoc along the front? So I think that's the big key. Like I said, we'll break it down extensively a couple of days from now on our Friday preview show or Thursday preview show like we do every single week. Let's go to Ozuna from the Braves at Haywood. Pretty cool. I wonder if he made it when Jason Haywood was rolling for the Braves a while back. He's now a Dodger, which kind of blew my mind the other night when I watched the Dodgers. I didn't even realize that he was on the team, and I'm a Dodger fan. Uh, who are the top three defenses in the country as of week one? I don't think this is a fair question because it's kind of dependent on the team that you played against. If, like, For instance, right now, statistically speaking, Memphis is the number one defense in the country. They give up 91 yards. Do any of you guys at home think that Memphis has the best defense? I personally don't. So I went and I took what I thought were the three best defensive performances. And I think that is probably a better way and a more appropriate way of answering the question from Ozuna from the Braves. Ohio State, I thought, had a tremendous, tremendous defensive performance. Only 153 total yards given up. That was fewer than any game all of last season. And they had really four plays Indiana had that gained 15 or more yards. So they didn't give up explosives. That was a point of emphasis. And then last year, you think about how they finished, obviously 87 combined points in the last two games with losses to both Michigan and Georgia. And they gave up nearly 1,063 yards in the process as well. Sorry, I had to do a quick math right there. So it wasn't ideal in their last two times out. Looked a lot better. This time around, we've seen this before. We thought, man, Ohio State's defense against Notre Dame last year in week one, man, they're incredible. Well, week one performance was great. I thought they really got after both quarterbacks used by Indiana, but Taven Jackson and Sorsby, uh, I thought, had a difficult time getting into a rhythm, just completed 9 of 21 for 82 yards through the year. One position of note has been the corners. How much better will the corners be? I thought Denzel Burke looked pretty good. I thought uh, Igbenosan. From Ole Miss transferring in, those guys were targeted 11 times and gave up just four receptions in the process for 54 yards. So those guys answered the call and didn't allow a lot of completions on the perimeter. And then the front seven, there really wasn't a whole lot going for Indiana running the football. Just two and a half, under two and a half yards per carry given up. Uh, and I think also, if there's one area where I'd like to see them improve, maybe a little bit along the defensive line, maybe a little bit as far as the pass rush is concerned, they didn't force a turnover. But either way, Good performance all around from the Ohio State Buckeyes defense. Tennessee, I thought, also had an excellent defensive performance. The defensive line was off the charts good. Now, how much of that was because Virginia's offensive line was terrible? Probably a little of both. But you think about how often he was pressured, Tony Musket, that is, that right side in particular, man, they were just getting abused on the right side, just getting hit and, and guys falling down. Kind of found out now, I mean, James Pierce, he might be a star already. Now, like I said, we'll see how he does up against better competition in the weeks to come. But game one, check the box. Tyler Barron, very explosive as well. 
You think about both those two guys each had a couple sacks. So worth noting that pass rush appears to be in really good shape. Love what I saw from the four linebackers that took the field. Been raving all off season about Aaron Beasley, how athletic he is, how good he is in coverage. He had that unbelievable matchup against the slot receiver and showed unbelievable instincts too, breaking up that crossing route on third down to force the punt too. So showed some of those cover abilities. We'd like to see him now. I mean, we know he can tackle. We know he can attack. We know he can blitz. But in the coverage, it was really impressive. I thought Keenan Peely had a nice first start. Four tackles in the debut, a couple of them out in space, so showed that he could be a sure tackler, a reliable piece there on the inside. And then a couple of young guys, too, that I thought flashed some athleticism and potential as well. And then the biggest thing, too, remember we've talked about Tennessee all offseason. What would they look like in the back end? Now, Virginia had a couple big plays. They had the the deep ball over the top where they got behind the defense, gained 25 or 30, whatever it was. But otherwise, man, the, I thought the coverage was pretty good in the back end. And if there's one thing I know about Virginia, I think they have two very good wide receivers. So knowing that that was a big question mark coming in, I thought Tennessee answered the call. And then finally, this one shouldn't surprise a lot. I thought North Carolina had maybe the best performance of the weekend defensively. Going against Spencer Rattler, Going against an offense that has some quality pieces on the perimeter, they were relentless along the line of scrimmage. Nine sacks, six on third down. They had just 17 sacks in 14 games last year, a disruption rate of 37% last year, meaning, meaning they basically caused havoc. They applied pressure 37% of the offensive snaps. Well, last year, they applied pressure on 10% of the offensive snaps, so nearly four times better in week one for Gene Chizik's defense. And Cayman Rucker, I think, is a complete standout. Cedric Gray continues to be an All-American candidate. And then the back end, too. There were some question marks about the back end. Elijah Huzzy, transfer from FCS. He slides into the nickel, looked pretty good, looked pretty comfortable, but would like at some point for him maybe to move back outside to his natural position of corner. But Teon Holloway maybe had some struggles with the Xavier Leggett. That was a tough matchup, by the way. Leggett's the real deal. Went for about 170 in the process. So Holloway maybe had some struggles in her, his first career start, but Marcus Allen on the other side, very solid as well. So those were the three best defensive performances that I saw in week number one, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Ohio State. Let's go next to Joshua. Thoughts on the new clock rules for television? This has been a hot topic of debate, I might add. The average game length in the last 10 seasons in 2013, 317, three hours and 17 minutes. 14, 322, 15, 317, uh, 16, 324. So basically they're up until 2016, somewhere between 315 and 325. Now, 2023, three hours and 26 minutes. It's down one minute from 2022. That's how long the game is lasting. And a lot of people are saying, well, television is being greedy. Television, there's too many commercials. I'm in television and I understand what pays the bills. So not going to find me being critical of the game presentation. I think it is what it is. Everyone's real proud of the amount of money that their program can have because of television rights deals. So you have to understand what comes with that. But I was concerned with the new clock rules and how many snaps would it basically eliminate from play. There were simulations run throughout the offseason where thought it might be upwards of eight snaps per game that were lost meaning over the course of a 12-game season, there will be 96 less snaps, less player exposures to where guys could potentially get injured. That was the idea. Keep the thing moving. Keep it rolling. 
limit the exposures at the players, and then let's see what happens. I don't think commercials, by the way, they have not gone up. There's still two commercial breaks per quarter and then a floater in the second quarter. You won't necessarily know what that means, but that's television speak, meaning that there are not more commercials now than there were before. But the average numbers of plays played in week number one was 66.9 plays per game. That's how many offensive plays each team ran in the first game of the season. Last year, in 2022, with the old clock rules, the average plays played was 68.7. So it's actually less than two offensive snaps that have come off of the play. So everyone's saying that there's been, oh, they're just trying to get rid of football. There's less football, two less offensive snaps per team. It doesn't seem like a significant amount, to be honest with you. And when you think too, back to... I mean, back in 2006, teams were playing 64 snaps per game. So in 2006, granted, you didn't see as many high-octane offenses. You didn't see crazy tempo. You didn't see guys throwing it all over the yard. There was more run game. There was more run support, all those other things. So we're really not that different from where we've been for the last two decades. Last year, 68.7. This year, 66.9. Back in 2006, we were at 64. So not massive differences across the world. I actually think the game flows a little better and it doesn't bother me quite as much. But it will be interesting as it plays out over the course of the season, just how much those numbers fluctuate from where they were in previous years. Mr. Economy's up next. Your thoughts on the AAC and the new edition showing up early. That's from Boca Raton, Florida. I'm jealous that you live in Boca. Secondly, let's start with the good. Thought Tulane had a terrific performance against a team last year in South Alabama that won 10 games. And Michael Pratt, just big plays, man. Big plays. I was looking up some of the stats across the country. Right now, Michael Pratt leads college football in completion percentage at 93.3%. He completed 14 to 15 passes. But what's more insane about his performance on Saturday is that he actually averages more yards per air yards per attempt on as far as how far the ball travels than anyone else in the country as well. So basically he averages throwing at 14.5 or so yards per attempt, air yards per attempt. So on average, the distance that the ball traveled from the line of scrimmage was 14 and a half yards. So he leads as far as the distance the throw was made, and he also leads in completion percentage. That is absolutely absurd. The national average, by the way, for air yards per attempt is 8.3. He's more than six yards more per attempt than the average FBS starter. His completion percentage, 93.3. He is 30 points north of the average college starter. Right now, the average completion percentage is 64.8. So it's pretty remarkable the performance that he had. And if he can continue doing that, they're in great shape. Plus the defense forced five turnovers. thought Memphis, of course, referenced them earlier. Great on offense, amazing on defense. That was the first time a Memphis opponent was held to less than 100 yards since 2015. So a great performance from Memphis on both sides of the ball. FAU pulled away from Monmouth. Casey Thompson, five touchdown passes. Great transfer from Nebraska. Won that starting job. Very comfortable. And I thought they had some really balanced attack too. I thought Larry McCammon rushing for 125 and a touchdown was also a nice performance for Tom Herman's debut. And then finally, SMU, they rolled Louisiana Tech. 
Preston Stone, his first, well, first season opening start, three touchdown passes, looked really good in the process, looked really, really comfortable, got out to a really fast start, and they looked, I think, excellent. But we're not going to know a whole lot about the AAC right now because there were a couple bad moments too. UTSA losing to Houston, that was a game I thought they really had a strong chance of winning. North Texas got routed against Cal, both offensively and defensively. So like I said, we're going to find out a lot more about SMU. We're going to find out a lot more about Tulane. We're going to find out a lot more about Tulsa. We're going to find out a lot more about Charlotte. All these teams, UTSA might get a bounce back situation against Texas State, who just had the big upset win against Baylor. So we're going to learn a lot more about the AAC, the new members, the old members, and what they might do moving forward based on some of the performances this weekend. Big opportunities in store for the AAC. SMU gets Oklahoma. Tulane gets Ole Miss. Tulsa gets Washington. Charlotte gets Maryland. And I referenced it already. UTSA gets a chance to take down Texas State. Let's go to Jordan Snow. Which college football contending teams cannot afford a loss? It's too early to have this conversation. We don't talk college football playoff right now because we don't know what's going to happen. We've barely even played any games. We've played very few conference games. We only played a couple games with college football playoff implications. And for instance, last year when Oregon got boat raced by Georgia in week one, everyone basically threw Oregon out with the bathwater. And next thing you know, they're on like a nine-game winning streak. And they're back within striking distance of the college football playoff. I remember back in 2014, Ohio State, they lost in 2014 in week two to Virginia Tech. Everyone said, well, Ohio State's done, put a fork in them. They didn't even look good against Navy in week one. Well, Ohio State rallied to win 13 consecutive games en route to a national championship back in 2014. So it's way too early to say which college football playoff cannot afford, playoff contenders cannot afford a loss. But based on week one performance, I would say it's the Big 12. Whoever their champion is, if they have two losses, that's not going to be good for the league because TCU took a hit. A couple other teams didn't look great. Oklahoma looks good. Texas did not look great. TCU, like I said, looked terrible on defense. So probably the Big 12, but it's way too early to make that prognostication right now. Let's go to Kyle Lewis at Kyle Lewis. How many times have you seen a team called for having two players with the same jersey number on the same field? I've seen it happen before. Don't feel bad about it. Saw it, obviously, Florida-Utah game. It does happen. Here's how you fix it. Stop giving every single player a single-digit number. And when you have double numbers across the board, a wide receiver and a DB don't need to be wearing the same number. I know the kids want it. I know it's great for recruiting. I know it's cool in their picture. But, hey, guess what? I'm sorry. You have to wear number 37. Because these are the things that happen when everybody wants a single digit, when everybody wants to be 10, 11, 12, 17, what have you, and everyone's got double numbers and you have 40 guys that are wearing the number between zero and 19, this is what happens. It's an easy fix. It's just you got to tell the players, hey, man, sorry, we don't have double numbers. That receiver, he's a junior. He gets number three. That DB, he's a freshman. He gets number 38. That's the way you fix it. And I don't know if any coaches are going to be willing to do that. Uh. Let's talk quickly about my final question because I like this one. This is from Sack Lunch. How good is Luke Altmeyer? What I liked most about Luke Altmeyer's performance, and let's be honest, Illinois had a less than stellar performance across the board in week one. Not saying that they're, you know, put a fork in them, they're done. Not by any stretch of the imagination. They might bounce back because Luke Altmeyer bounced back, had that bad interception at a triple coverage. And I think that that could have very easily kind of messed with his confidence. That could have really easily affected him down the stretch. But how about the fact that right after that interception, he might be reeling, right? No, not the case at all. 
consecutive Illini scoring drives after that, throwing passes all over the field, escaping pressure. How about in a gotta-have-it situation at the end of the game with pressure bearing down on them, no problem whatsoever, threw a dart to Casey Washington, gave him a chance to reel it in to make that game-saving play. I was very impressed with what I saw from Luke Altmaier. Of course, got off to a really nice start. I thought it was a great opening script from their offensive staff. He looked comfortable. And I do believe, now this is early, right? It's early and it's against a MAC team and all these other things, but it's a MAC team that I think a lot of people really respect. But he looks to be like the type of kid that you can really build the offense around. We all know what the offense was last year. It was three yards in the cloud of dust. We're going to hit you in the mouth. We're going to run the football 35 times if possible. But he feels like he can shoulder the load. And if this offense needs to revert more to a little bit more pass-heavy attack, I think he is certainly capable of being able to handle that load as they kind of navigate throughout the season. So very impressed with his first start at Illinois and even more impressed with him, his ability to bounce back after the mistake was made there in the second half. And a fun little game that we always like to play as often as we can is coach speak. We're now starting to get very regular press conferences from these coaches. So it's a little easier to put this together. We'll do it every single week. We'll pick out a couple clips and we'll try to interpret what it is these coaches are trying to say. First up, Nick Saban of the Alabama Crimson Tide. I know it'll be an exciting game from a you know fan's perspective. And uh, we love that atmosphere and environment that they create. But I think one of the things that's really important for players is can you stay focused on, you know, what you need to do and not get affected by, you know, a lot of the external factors? Well, coach, pretty easy to interpret what he's trying to do. He's trying to make sure that his guys stay focused on the plan. Heard this all the time. External factors cannot affect your performance. Doesn't matter if your girlfriend break up breaks up with you. Doesn't matter if you're you know you're it's a billion degrees. It doesn't matter if it's blowing forty two miles an hour. External factors cannot have an impact on how you perform. But at the same time, it's also a call to arms amongst his fan base to say we want to create a chaotic environment just like we had to go into last year. We went to Daryl K Royal Memorial Stadium. We want to create the similar environment in Tuscaloosa so that Texas feels the same level of hostility that we felt when we went on the road last year. Also, a little side bandage. You guys see the Texas seat assignments that they were given in Bryant Denny? They are in they're in the nosebleed section of the nosebleeds. That's how far away they are from the field. So Texas, yep. Usually, by the way, I've played obviously a bunch of games in Bryant Denny. The home crowd basically is 90% of the lower bowl. In the far left corner, that's the visitor section. So basically, completely opposite where the visitors run out, that's where they're at. Student section to the right, basically all the way around. And then far left corner from where you stand on the sidelines as an Alabama player, that's the visitor section. That's not the case this week. They are going to be relocated to the upper deck, which is where Texas had Alabama in the game last year. So just a little gamesmanship being played in response to where the players' families had to sit last year in the scorching Texas heat in early September. So found that a little funny. Thought you guys might as well. 
Up next, we're going to go to Jim Harbaugh, who, of course, is in the midst of serving a suspension. But there was a little tribute from his team when they took the field. You talk about turning a negative into a positive. Uh, I just love the way our, our our team is doing that. It's and it's a unique opportunity to build leadership, build leaders, because um, they have a, a chance to to make those incredible leadership bonds. Um, and and personally, uh, it was great. It was great watching the team. They played fast, physical, smart, tough. Um, and, and personally, I felt the love too, which was uh, great from the from uh, our team and from the Michigan faithful. Well, I think what he's saying there is a lot of truth. A lot of people say, "Well, it's about his coach speak as it gets." I might add, with Jim Harbaugh, it's always about his coach speak as it gets. But I think he does feel the love and the appreciation for the players. I think he tried to create a little. He's trying to make things uncomfortable for the players to a certain extent because right now, man, it'd be easy for them to go through the motions the first three weeks of the season. But if you go through the motions, man, that could have a long-term effect on just how good your team's going to be. If you look at the competition, the spread, just how much better you are than the three teams you'll play while he's serving his suspension, there's really nothing to keep Michigan on edge. But the absence of their head coach, I think, has them feeling a little bit of urgency has them feeling a little bit of accountability. And it actually, like I've said in the past, this could galvanize Michigan to improve maybe a little faster than they would if Jim Harbaugh were on the field. So, I, like I've said, I think this suspension might ultimately help them down the road based on their week one performance. Even though it was not dominant offensively, it was pretty dang good. And it was pretty dang good and pretty dang efficient on the defensive side as well. So it'll be worth monitoring moving forward. But for all intents and purposes, like I said, I think the suspension in the long term will benefit the Wolverines. Let's go next to Nebraska. Big opportunity coming up for Matt Rule, but let's hear what he had to say about the last week's performance. Guys in the portal that we have a relationship with, you know, we have respect for or we know or something, they fit us. You know, obviously we'll take some of those guys. We're going to try to recruit high schools as much as possible, specifically local guys, um, you know, it's always taken me a couple of years to get the program up and running, you know, and usually I feel like when it's done, like, you know, we, we got the temple, we lost the championship game. We won it the next year. They won, they won for a couple of years after that with the new coach. Um, I went to Baylor. We lost the championship game in year three COVID here, year four, those same kids, you know, won it, won the big 12, went to the sugar bowl. So I only know how to kind of do it one way. The rules are a little different now, but you know, I respect anybody that's just trying to figure out how to win. You know what I mean? Like, you know, so there's different ways of doing it. So, um, However, however, Coach Sanders is doing it, however Luke Fickle's doing it, however everybody's doing it, um, it's not really for me to say. Uh, for me, it's just, hey, this is how we're doing it. And um, uh, this recruiting class that we have right now to us, is, like as I said last week, is a really big one for us as we move forward. And asked there, obviously, about all the new additions that Colorado has and how they immediately injected life into their program. Same could be said at Wisconsin. ton of transfers, obviously 56 at Colorado. Wisconsin had a bunch as well. Luke Fickle, have they gone to the portal? Absolutely they have. They've used it. The NIL has been favorable to them as well. But like he said, man, you can't really doubt what he's done in his career. The guy's won everywhere he's been, and he's done so at places that most people thought it'd be almost impossible to do so again. That's at Temple, where no one had ever won big or consistently. He did so. That was at Baylor in the midst of sanctions and 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 challenges. Uh, he went in 
won one game year one and then progressively got better as they move forward. So I think he's the last guy I would question when it comes to building a program. I think it's one of the best pastimes that we have is trying to interpret what these coaches are trying to say in their press conferences. Those guys all go up with an agenda. They want to kind of formulate a narrative. They want to push something. Then it's kind of, we're tasked with what are they really trying to say? Maybe they're, maybe we just overanalyze it, but I like it. I think it's fun. So coach speak is a segment that will be with us here every Wednesday. So we'll look forward to doing it again next week for all of us here at always college football please continue to like rate and subscribe it helps us out we haven't got as many reviews lately so if you could leave a review on apple Podcasts, that would be really helpful to us as we move forward here in year number two for mark jake jack i'm greg we hope you have a wonderful day and remember it's always college football Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.